what makes a church? What makes a community? What's really behind what we do? In fact, what makes anything we actually do effective? And that's what I want to get to today in today's talk. So let's just, let's pray as we jump into today's talk. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, uh, for your love, for your grace. Thank you for this birthday that we can not just celebrate that many of us have been together and serving and being together, whether it's a few years or 14 years, but that you have been active and faithful through this time. We say thank you for that. And as we open your word this morning, would you speak so um, deeply into our hearts? I trust that there are some here today that particularly need to hear this word for them and for us as a church community, what it would mean for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last um, winter, we had a retreat, a church retreat. It was up in El Perot, and that weekend was very icy. Um, and so the, the kind of the hilly roads at the retreat center were a little bit difficult for cars navigating. And Steve Colantonio, our guitarist, was there, and he, his car was down the hill taking his luggage and stuff. That's not his car, but I just found the picture with ice. So, and it was just like... He was stuck. He, he came up. He tried everything he could. You know, he tried everything any of us do when we're stuck in ice. And he comes up the hill and he's like, guys, I'm stuck. Is there anybody who can help me? And four or five guys, you know, went down the hill with Steve and came around the car and he got in it and bang, they, he got out of the ice. I mean, the strength of those four or five guys just really made it happen. And he came up the hill and Steve was incredibly grateful. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing today's talk. I was thinking, Steve had a decent car. I know Steve, he's prepared, so he definitely had snow tires. Uh, I know he's a good driver, a careful driver, and he's probably a kind of driver that can get out of ice like a normal ice situation. But this was, he was just stuck. And, but he needed something. He needed a boost. He needed help. And these four or five guys that came around him, basically that kind of created the boost. It took him out of a situation that he just could not accomplish by himself. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? You ever been in that kind of moment where you've done all you can do and nothing, there's nothing, but then something happens? Something happens that makes the difference? The wind blows in a certain direction. You're camping and nobody has matches. And then a friend shows up and says, oh, I got matches in my pocket. And it's like they had the matches. Or maybe it was, uh, you know, the electricity comes on finally right at the right moment. It comes on. Or maybe you've been in a band and you're trying to create like a really good band. And we've heard this about popular musicians. And the band was going kind of mediocre. The last three bass players just, ah, they really didn't groove. And then they met somebody. Like Sting, when he created the police, he met his guitarist on the metro, and he had a random conversation, and that changed the police forever. It's like this band is waiting, and this, the last musicians weren't so great, and then they meet, oh, this bass player just kicked it, and it, then it took off. Ever in those moments where you know this would not have happened unless that took place? You get it. You, you know And today I want to talk about this in a sense of what it means to be a church uh, growing in worship, growing in spiritual formation, growing in mission. Because here's the reality. We only exist because God is active. In fact, every church on the planet is officially charismatic. Now, when I say charismatic, I don't mean that they necessarily look like a charismatic Pentecostal church or whatever. But I mean, no church exists without the 
charismatic work of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. God spoke through one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Zechariah, and he said this, it's not by might, he's speaking to Israel, it's not by might that you're going to get this done, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. That the Holy Spirit, the work of God, is what makes any church, any ministry, any mission possible. As I was thinking about this fall and this new season over the summer, I was listening to a podcast, actually, of another speaker. And I don't do that too often, but there's a couple of speakers I feel like I, I need to sit and listen and learn and grow. And, um, and I need to do that too. You know, you guys hear me speak a lot, but I need to sit under teaching and learn and grow and just allow the Spirit to work in me. And one, just one line came out of this guy's message. Um, and he talked about the story of Elijah. And uh, what Elijah, how Elijah depended on God for this moment in, in his life as a prophet in Israel. And when, when that little line came across, and I kinda, it kind of stuck in my mind. And I started to think about the fall as I was preparing for the fall, preparing for just with other teams what's going on. I, this thought came to mind. I thought, none of this, God, is possible unless you show up. Like, not, nothing that we would want to see happen or long to see happen, none of it's possible unless you show up. And so this prayer started to well up in me leading up to the fall. A really simple prayer. And, you know, you don't copy it necessarily. It's not like the most theological prayer, but the prayer is this. Lord, please light this up. Lord, please light this up. Like I said, like you're not going to find that prayer in the Bible, and it's probably not written in a common book of prayer. Uh, some of my friends would say that, you know, when they hear that, they think of Lewis lit on suits. You know, I'm going to lit you up. But um, that's another story. And don't think of him. Now I made you think of him, but don't think of him. Um, but just, just a simple prayer. Lord, light this up. I want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, and it's uh, part of Elijah's story. And Elijah was a prophet in Israel, and this story takes place during the time of one of the kings named Ahab. And Elijah wants to meet Ahab. He wants to confront Ahab. And Ahab is a king of Israel. Ahab doesn't like Elijah. He doesn't like what Elijah stands for. He doesn't like the messages that Elijah gives because it's going against Ahab's uh, direction for Israel. So here's the context before we even read the story. Ahab is a king of Israel, and often kings are described in two ways. They did good in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Kind of those two, two labels. Ahab was on this side. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he gave room for Israel to take on the culture of the cults and tribes and religions of the time, the, the people that were living among them or in the nation surrounding them. And he literally went on an onslaught against Israel's very own prophets, even people like Elijah. He was going on an onslaught against Israel's true spiritual life. In fact, he married a woman named Jezebel, and often her name is even associated with evil. And she, you know, she was so enamored with the cults and religions of the surrounding nations. She housed and had for supper, over for supper, the 450 prophets of the false god. That's Ahab. There's a guy named Obadiah we slightly meet in the story. He works within the system. He works within the kingdom. He's not like a, he's not a real provocator type of guy. He's not very bold, he, he, but he loves God, and he worships the Lord of Israel. And um, he's not with Ahab in terms of that direction, but he works, he's one of those guys that work under the radar, work within the system. Elijah worked outside the system, caused some trouble. 
Obadiah worked inside the system and, and tried to do good. In fact, sometimes he hid some of Israel's good prophets away from Ahab. And then there's Elijah. He's kind of like Mr. Incredible. <laughs> he's like a risk taker. He's bold. He's a bold prophet. He's a kind of like, I don't care what happens to me kind of guy. I have to do what God has told me to do. In fact, he's the kind of prophet that, that predicted things. He didn't just cast judgment after something happened. As an example, before chapter 18, he actually commands a drought. So he says, no rain's going to take place in Israel for three years as judgment to you, Ahab. Now, that's pretty cool because some people call themselves a prophet and say, hey, it hasn't rained for a year. I bet you that's because God's judging you. But see, Elijah was on this side and he said, it's not going to rain for three years and that's God's judgment towards you. That's a different story, right? Like it's easy to stand on this side and say, ah, you got hurt. That's God's judgment. In fact, please don't do that to people. But when you're standing on this side and you say, this is going to happen as God's judgment to you, if you're not right, you're fried. And that was Elijah. He predicted a drought. Now Ahab doesn't like Elijah Ahab doesn't like his prophetic role or the the words or the the message he has, but he's also afraid of his influence. So he wants him out of the way. And Elijah sets up this showdown in the region on Mount Carmel to confront Ahab and the kind of false prophets of the region. And uh, we pick it up at verse 16 in chapter 18. I'm going to read it briefly with very little comment and then then bring a couple of ideas together. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. They, They were planning this meeting. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? He doesn't like him. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. That was the gods of the region the false gods. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Notice something here. Where is that? Yeah, if, if Baal is God, follow him. He uses the word God with a big G. That's the word Elohim in Hebrew. And so he's, Elijah's pretty bold. He's like, if you think Yahweh is Elohim, then follow him. If you think Baal is Elohim, the word they used for God, then follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of 400 of the Lord's prophets left, the only one. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God. Now he uses a little G. And I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. The God who answers by fire is God. Then the people said, what do you, what you say is good? And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, okay, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. 
Then they called him the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to, to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder. And, and get this, they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until blood flowed, as was their custom. So often when people worshipped these gods that they believed they could manipulate and make them do something, they would often cut their, 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 their skin and let the blood flow out to show you got to do something. Please make something happen. They're trying to manipulate the gods by that. I lost my spot. Where am I? 29. Thanks, guys. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, okay, come here to me. They came to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord. Keep that in mind. Which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, these four large jars. He ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. I want to just pause here for a second. Think about that. Think about what's happening here. Here, and we're going to continue, verse 26. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. So he just steps forward and he prays. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. That's Elijah's hope. His hope is that Israel, who has taken a really big spiritual detour, would be drawn back to him. And that even the prophets and Ahab and others would see who God really is and come back to him and follow him. And, and, and Elijah sets up this do or die moment. I mean, think about it. Think about what he does. He gives total freedom to the 450 false prophets and he's on his own. And then as he sets up this altar in hopes that God is going to miraculously consume it with fire, they're like freaking out. And he, in a simple way, steps forward and says this simple prayer. And it's a do or die moment. It's a show up or go home type of moment. And if nothing would happen, he'd probably be dead, for sure. And then we read verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And also licked up the water in the trench. Someone recorded that. 
It also licked up the water in the trench. Here's this moment. Do or die moment. Show up or go home moment. And fire appears out of nowhere and consumes this altar, this sacrifice, the wood, the stone. The water is completely dried up. Dallas Willard talks about something like this. He, he, he calls them interactions with heaven. And you can read into the story of Abraham or even one of Abraham's, uh, Hagar, who had um, Ishmael, the story of Jacob, the story of Moses, where the, where the word heaven is interjected in their prayers. Lord, would you, would heaven come down? Would heaven interject? The sense of, God, would, would your presence, would your space, would your power, would it come right now and do something in our space? And Dallas Willard calls it interactions of heaven, moments when heaven breaks in. It's amazing. In this moment, it would be an interaction of heaven, but it's fire. It's like fire manifests out of nowhere. In fact, there's three or four spots in the Old Testament where this happens, where fire, God, fire comes out of nowhere, and they, they give God a nickname. And the nickname is, our God is a consuming fire. Because there was a couple of moments in their story where God used fire to show up, used fire to lead them, used fire to show them who he was and that he was moving forward. Now, Dallas Willard would also call this consuming fire a fire of love, but we know that our God is big and strong, and as much as he's a good God and a God of love, he's not a safe God. C.S. Lewis described this in the the character of Aslan, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia, when when Lucy, little Lucy, comes up to Aslan and it's like... This is a big lion. (laughs) And there's that that moment like, Aslan is safe. Sorry, he's good, but he's not safe. He's good, ultimately good, full of love, but he's not safe. He's God. And I want you to think about this whole scene for a moment and how it applies to us. Now, a couple of things, because like my biblical interpretation hat comes on and I would hate to lead anybody astray here. So a couple of things before I even say what I want to say. One is, don't replicate this story. Who's mad at the Pitbull uh, band? You know, like, don't go down to Denis Cordaire's office and say, set up something here, and whoever wants the Pitbulls and whoever does it, we're going to see what... Anyways, that's kind of crazy, right? But don't replicate the story in a sense like, don't, you don't have to make God act the same, do the same thing twice. And, and maybe it's trivial to talk about our politics here, but don't replicate the story. It's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's describing what happened in the moment, how God acted in that moment. It's not prescribing and saying, do it exactly like this. You know what I'm saying? Paul in the New Testament jumps on a dead guy and the person resurrects, resurrects back to life. We never see any apostle do that again. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So keep mind of that. Another thing to keep in mind is often stories like this, you know, preachers and teachers or, or Christians will like love it. It's like, this is like a movie. We can make a movie out of this. And this is great Christian entertainment. And if people can see what God does, and if God can like throw firecrackers and alarms and bells and whistles, then people are going to believe in him. And what I would say is don't ever turn something like this into entertainment. It's like, God, if you don't show up in some crazy, miraculous, out of this world way, then no one's going to believe in you. 
Again, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So be, be aware or be aware not to try and replicate everything you read in Scripture, but to get to the heart of it. And be careful not to view God as what he does as entertainment. Because people can come to know Jesus or discover who God is in many ways. But I think the heart of this in this scene is this. Two things. One is, Elijah prepared an altar. Elijah prepared an altar. Now, this is interesting because Elijah is like one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful looking prophet in the Old Testament. Right? He commands the rain to stop for three years. That's pretty powerful. He walks into a woman's house whose child upstairs is sick and, or dead, and he walks up the stairs and, and, and spends time with this child and brings the girl down the stairs alive. It's crazy. He, he needs to, he's spending time at a widow's home, and this widow has children, and she's worried about how she's going to provide for them, and there's a famine in the land, and she has like this much oil left, and Elijah says, listen, you make bread every single day, and I promise you the Lord will provide oil for you, and that oil never ran dry. She just kept making bread every day with this much oil, every day, over and over and over again, never went dry. So Elijah's, you know, I mean, he's seen some pretty crazy things. But here, Elijah doesn't do that. Elijah doesn't command fire to come. Elijah doesn't command anything to happen. Elijah prepares an altar. He builds an altar. He just does his part. And that's so important for you and me, this metaphor for you and me, for ministry, for life, even for our church at Westside. We are called to build or prepare an altar, in a sense. We need to do our part. We're faithfully called by God to do what God has called us to do. This morning atmosphere, this gathering, this is an altar. We prepare this altar. We say, Lord, would you have your way in here? A few of us were praying before the gathering. We know we set up chairs and musicians prepare and I'm preparing and other things are going on in Kids Quest. But ultimately we say, Lord, this is an altar. Would you do something with it? We set up an environment for spiritual growth and mission. The the worship team prepares songs and someone's prepared to help a, a child discover God today. People open up their homes for others that are seeking the Lord. We start an alpha group. What are we doing? We're we're just we're preparing an altar. We're doing our part. We don't know what the result will be. Elijah didn't fully know. He had big expectations. But what was his part? He prepared the altar. We have a vision for something, but we can't make it happen in our own strength. But we can prepare the altar. And preparing the altar is never useless, is never wasted. And sometimes it looks like Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. Long process. And that's another thing to learn from this story. Don't be afraid of a long process or a faithful process. Tim Keller shares the story. He's a pastor in New York. And maybe you've heard of him or read some of his books, but when their church started in New York City, he was the third guy on the list of people to choose for pastors. <laughs> third guy. He's like, oh, okay, let's see if it works with Keller, you know? And uh, he ends up going to New York, and he describes things. He went, he went to, um, to New York 40 times before he ever planted the church. You know why he went there? Just to learn the lingo of Greenwich Village. He's just preparing the altar. He, he knew he was the third guy on the list and wasn't necessarily the top guy on the list, but he went and he surrendered himself to the Lord and he said, God, we're going to prepare an, an altar here. We're going to do something and trust that you're going to be at work. He describes the, the, first, the first 18 months of his church as miraculous. 
He tries to describe what revival might look like. And he says the first 18 months of Redeemer Church was incredible. They've been in existence for almost 30 years now. He says the first 18 months, one, uh, sorry, four out of every five visitors, not the people in the church, four out of every five guests were unbelievers. They were seekers. They were doubters. Four out of every five. He said, it was amazing. We saw so many people search for God and then discover God. Four to five people in those first 18 months were seekers, doubters, skeptics. He says, today, one out of every five are. And why it's so sobering to hear him say that is he says, we're still preparing an altar. We're still doing our part. But those 18 months, that was God. God, we couldn't have manufactured that. He talks about when they started the church, how 40 university students came to faith, not because of him. He didn't, even, he didn't even know them. He only met them. And these 40 universities helped launch this church. Imagine 40 university students coming to faith and excited about Jesus. 40. The women's ministry of North America gave them a financial gift of half a million dollars. And, the, and churches around the country were praying for their success. And he says... That was God, but we, all we did was prepare. And there's been seasons where it didn't look like that, right? But they're preparing. So we can prepare. We always have to prepare. But we have no control over the outcome. We can just faithfully prepare the altar. We had a, a vision, part of our vision last year, we said for the next few years, we want to be intentional about seeing people actually come to faith in Jesus. You can call it conversion or new discipleship, discovery. And we said part of that would be we'd love to see also a following of, of baptism after that. And so we thought, well, how, what's going to happen? And God put a whisper in our hearts and in our leaders, and we said, we should start Alpha. And I didn't know who was going to start it and how it was going to happen, but we just thought we should do this. And then get all stepped up, and she came to faith through Alpha nine years ago, and that was out of the blue. I didn't know that. And, and God's brought a team together, and I'm telling you, there was like to see 35, 40 people the first evening of Alpha. There was, we, had, we had less people in our gatherings for the first two and a half years of our church than we're at Alpha three weeks ago. And almost 30 of them are tracking. And a third of them are either just learning about Jesus, don't know Jesus, want to discover something about faith. A third of them. I don't say that because we did anything perfect. I just say we just tried to prepare the altar. And God had his way. But here's the other part of that for us. And I'm going to ask the team to slowly come up. Is we need, to, we need to then pray a prayer like Elijah. Lord, would you light this up? Simple prayer. You won't find it in the Bible, like written that way. But I think that's partly what Elijah was saying. Lord, would you answer? What was he saying? Lord, would you light this up? I can't light it up. I'm not going to burn this altar. See, interestingly enough, normal altars and sacrifices in Israel, they would prepare the altar, prepare the animal, and then they would light the wood. They would light the wood. They would, it wasn't miraculous. They lit the wood and they did the sacrifice. But Elijah didn't do that. Elijah prepared the altar, the 12 stones, the wood, the animal. And then he throws 12 large jugs of water on top of it just to make sure just to make sure, like, I want to make sure that I have nothing to do with this. I can't get through water like that. I don't got a blowtorch here. They wouldn't have had it at the time. What does he do? He's like, no, they didn't do that. They just said, we're not going to light this sacrifice up. We're going to ask God to do this. And I think here's the reason why. 
Elijah was desperate. Elijah was desperate to, to change the trajectory of Israel's spiritual detour. You need to catch that. Elijah was desperate to change the, the trajectory of Israel's spiritual detour. And, and, and without even mentioning it, you can put that to what our heart, our city, our neighborhood, our workplace. Are we desperate to see change or to see, see the trajectory change of the spiritual detour, of the spiritual depravity in our city, in our province? in our neighborhoods, in our relationships. In essence, Elijah said, God, we need you in such a fresh way today. Please do something. And the simple prayer, he didn't command fire to show up, but he said, Lord, will you light this altar? Will you light this up? See, what do we do? What do I do at times? We often say, oh, look what I did. Look how I drew them. Look at the environment I set up. Look at how good I spoke. Look how awesome our location is. What a hip pastor. Sorry, I just slipped that in. Um, it's not true, but... Or we think about this way. I did all the right things. I did so much work. I, I mean, God, I thought for sure A plus B equals C. That just because I did this and I did that and we did this, that for sure this would be the result. And often... Part of that nature in me and in some of us is we want to be tied to the success. We want our name tied to the success of it. And God says, I want to blow people's hearts up. I want them to know who I am. I want to show them my love. And you know what? That's, I'm, going to, I'm going to overpass you because I'm going to use you and you're preparing this altar. But let me tell you, let me tell you, in the end, in the end it's ultimately me doing a work in their heart. And if that's what you want, if you want your name tied to something, then we're not ready for God to light up the altar. Elijah depended on God because Elijah wanted people to turn to him and he was secondary. And I'm telling you, there's moments when you'll see God work. There's moments when you'll be speaking to a friend and you've been praying for them for five years or 10 years and all of a sudden you see a window of a revelation come into them and, and, and I'm, I bet, I know when this has happened to me, I almost have to turn away or when I leave them, just I take this deep breath and I'm like, oh my goodness, God, that was you at work. Like I couldn't have made that happen. Never forget, 20 years ago, we were, I was involved in young adult ministry in Lachine and part of a small church and a, a really small youth ministry and young adult ministry. But we really believed that God would touch young adults' hearts. And so we did something called Present Tense Live. That was the name of the group, so we called it Present Tense Live. It was a cheesy 1990s name, I know. But the, the point is this, is that, that we had like five, ten young adults, and we said, we're going to do a Saturday night where we invite our friends, and you tell your friends and tell people that maybe you're disconnected or disconnected to the church or don't know God or whatever, and we're going to do something. And I remember preparing this, and I had never had any experience in this, and I thought, God, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I'll never forget, it was, it was getting close to 7.30. We were about to start. We did it in a modest basement of a church, modest setup, but like as good quality as we possibly could. And I'll never forget, 7.25, there's people coming in, and it's starting to fill up. And, and our group of nine or 10 people uh, saw 50, 60 people show up that evening. And I'm telling you that at that moment, this kind of rush went into my heart and I left the room and I went up the stairs and I, I hope this doesn't ring and I, it's going to ring. And I leaned, I leaned against the wall 
up the corridor, and I just leaned. I was like, oh, gosh, God, this is crazy. You, you did this. You guys can start as we move into this. You did this. I remember, we, I, I was thinking, God, we couldn't have made that happen. And some of those people eventually came to faith, um, started following Jesus. And the response is amazing in this text. It says that when the fire consumed everything, that the people fell down and worshiped God. And that's what Elijah wanted. He didn't want to be worshipped himself. They fell down. They worshipped God. And I love what Elijah does. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, of course. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down on the ground, and put his face between his knees. And we don't know how long he stayed. We don't know what that moment entails, what he said. But we get this picture. I have this sense that Elijah's like freaking out, saying, God, I can't believe you did this despite of everything else. You did this. We couldn't have done this. And he's down with his legs in between his knees with this, I think, this rush of joy, gratitude, fear all at once and saying, oh, man, that's amazing, God, what you did. You showed up. You showed up. And so my encouragement to you today as we lean into ending this gathering with worship, my, my invitation is really simple. Let's just keep building up. Let's just keep preparing an altar. Let's keep preparing an altar for the Lord to work. Community groups are an altar. Youth ministry is an altar. Sunday gatherings are an altar. Your homes are an altar. Your lives are an altar. Let's keep preparing an altar. Let's keep doing our part, serving, growing, giving, creating, teaching, preparing an altar. And then without any expectation of what that means for me personally or you personally or for Westside personally or doesn't matter who gets credit or whatever, where we say, Lord, would you please light this up? Would you please light this up? Would you please light this up? And that's the, that's the heart of this story. And our role is let's prepare an altar. Let's keep preparing an altar, but believe and expect that God can come and act and do something extraordinary beyond our imagination. Would, would you want that? And are you ready just to keep being faithful to preparing this altar? Some of them are going to get lit up really quick like our Alpha this year. And some of them are going to take a little longer. And some of them we might discover that wasn't exactly what God had in store. But our role is preparing the altar and then saying, Lord, light this up. And I invite you to stand as the team leads us into worship um, for the next little while. And we might take a little longer than um, just in this gathering to worship and uh, then close in communion. And that's okay. We got potluck happening later. And... But here, as we worship, can I just invite you to think about those two things? One, bring yourself to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm preparing this altar for you, giving myself to you. And then ask him to light you up, to light this up, to light our lives up, to light this church up. And if you need prayer today, if, if you say, Dave, I really, I want someone to stand with me in prayer. I want someone, I, I, I need to tangibly, like, like Elijah, just step forward and say this prayer. Lord, please light up my altar, light up my life, light up this church. While the team is singing and worshiping, if you feel you need to do that, I encourage just to make this space here in the front just a space where you can come and pray and you can tangibly say like Elijah, God, please light this up. So please feel free to do that and a few people definitely will come around and pray for you as that happens. So let's, let's worship.
God, we stand here before you. We bless you. We worship you. We declare in our hearts and with our lips that you are God. Lord, may we not waver on that opinion. May we stand to see your truth, to see your power, to see your love. That even in the grandiose, amazing, mighty power of a consuming fire, that in all reality, it's not safe, but it's so good. You are so good. There is love and grace and hope in your fire. God, we together as a church community in this moment, we come before you and we, we bring ourselves to you as an altar. We prepare our lives as an altar. We prepare our service as an altar. We prepare our gifts and our offering and our finances as an off, off, uh, altar our youth ministry and children's ministry and alpha and community groups and neighborhood impact and global partners. God, we bring this before you this morning as an altar. May you give us the courage and the grace and the resilience and the faithfulness to continue serving you daily, weekly. We give ourselves to you. We give this church to you, this ministry to you. It is yours. And we offer it to you freely because it is nothing we can keep for ourselves. And then we ask, Lord, would you light it up? Would you light it up, O oh God? Would your power and your glory and your spirit light up this altar, light up this church, light up our lives? We offer willingly to you and just pray simply like Elijah did. Lord, will you answer? Will you light this up? And then God, when we get to see you work and get to stand in awe of you, God, may we step back. May our lungs be filled with joy and expectation knowing that you, that heaven has interacted with us. Whether it's the small step in a person's spiritual journey, whether it's a miraculous touch from your hand, whether it's, it's a financial provision for your work, wh- whatever it might be, God, may we stand back in awe and point to you and you alone. And for anybody here today, God, even personally in their lives, if they're longing for you to be at work and for heaven to interact with them, God, we pray and stand with them in Jesus' name today. We pray, amen.